вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. The general view of Imperial Russia under Nicholas I is that of a retrograde and conservative period. And it indeed was. But at the same time, the Nikolaivan period was an era of small reforms where locals began creating civil institutions, regional newspapers, statistical bureaus, and voluntary organizations. This civil society gave rise to local identities that helped shape the local implementation of Alexander II's great reforms. So what was this era of small reforms, budding civil society, and the subnational identities that formed along with them? For some insight, I turn to Susan Smith-Peter to talk about her new book, Imagining Russian Regions. Susan Smith-Peter is an associate professor of history at the College of Staten Island, City University of New York, where she specializes in Russian history beyond the two capitals of Moscow and St. Petersburg, regional identity, and civil society. She's the author of Imagining Russian Regions, Civil Society and Subnational Identity in 19th Century Russia, published by Brill. Here's Susan Smith-Peter. Your book, Imagining Russian Regions, focuses on the local, I mean, specifically Vladimir province. And in fact, you write that uh, the autocracy was weakest there and as a result had the most need to reach out to locals for information. So I thought we'd start by having you talk about the importance of looking at issues of governance in Imperial Russia at the local level. Yeah, that's a great question. And thanks for asking it and for having me on your blog. So I think there's a couple different reasons why it's so important to look at governance in Russia at the local level. And the first is pretty basic. It's geographical. I mean, after all, Russia is the largest country. It was then, it is now. And it just was not possible for the state to have complete control over the local without reaching out, especially in this time before 1861, before the great reforms. So that is one of the crucial things when we're looking at how the state actually did things. We need to look at the local to understand why and how the decisions that were made in St. Petersburg were actually received. How were they implemented? And without looking at the local, we just can't know. It almost seems as if there's someone who is just speaking into the void, and we're just assuming that the void is responsive, even though we don't really have any evidence. So that's one reason, the geographical reason. And there's another political reason. And uh, that is, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville said that the local is the true locus of liberty. And I like to use quotes and ideas that were actually 
present at the time. So this is not just some quote that I'm applying randomly or like, you know, at the beginning of a chapter, but one that the people in my book actually knew about and discussed. And I think it is very important. The local is the place, even within the in, within the autocracy, that some form of political life did take place. For example, the noble assemblies, even though they were just designed to deal with the issues of the noble estate, estate itself, they still were doing a sort of local politics by making these decisions, even though they were pretty strictly delimited as to what they could do. And so by the late 1850s, when we get the preparations for the abolition of serfdom, it's the focus, the local itself is indeed the focus of attempts to have a more uh, responsive polity, one in which individuals could take part in some kind of more, um, you know, devolved system in which they would be able to have their voices heard and to speak for the local. So all these reasons together, and of course the local is also one of the places uh, where so much of great Russian literature and art is set. And even though it's often perceived in this way as if it's just a, a generic kind of Russian place, quote unquote, still it is absolutely crucial to this emerging sense of, of what Russia is. Yeah, this is something that you point out that, um, you know, a lot of the great Russian literature is, is always placed in some, you know, they never really even give a name for the place. It's just usually the first letter of the supposed province or, or provincial uh, capital. Uh, and it, it's kind of a, an every, every place Russia. Um, and, and I think uh, you point out too that Gogol, for example, speaks of Russian provincial life as kind of a void. Um, and, and this kind of speaks to two, I think, two ways Russian governance at the center versus the periphery has been looked, looked at. One is the fact that Russia, even in the mid 19th century and beyond, to a large extent, remains a undergoverned country. Um, and that produces the sense of, well, what goes on the provinces is actually what's really going on. And the autocracy in the center has very little um, power to shape what goes on in the localities. The other is, is that the other impression is that power is so centralized in the center that nothing goes on in the provinces. And you really try to provide um, a corrective to that. Could you talk a bit about that issue of, of center-periphery relations? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the, the, the main focal points of the book, because I wanted to avoid either of those extremes. The center absolutely did have a role because it was the center that could create institutions that could be formed in every single province. And those institutions were crucial to creating a widespread sense of provincial identity. And uh, without the the center's decision, you would not have that kind of uh, widespread uh, creation of, of institutions. At the same time, the local has an existence which is separate from the center. And there are people in the local who are more or sometimes less able to respond to what the center wants from them. So it is a back and forth. It really is. And I have seen things that have been uh, very influenced by Gogol. And 
it's a problem. I often think to myself, well, what if someone who was working on the U.S. South said something like, we don't really need to study the workings of everyday life in the U.S. South because we have Faulkner, right? He, he, he wrote about the South, and surely that's accurate. Uh, well, I mean, it's a work of fiction. It's a work of art, and it is not the same thing as a work of nonfiction. And, but I have seen many a time discussions as if Gogol is providing a kind of transparent window onto actual life. And one of the things I argue is that Gogol himself in Dead Souls is responding to exactly what I'm writing about. The first part of the book is a rejection of the non-noble public that I describe emerging at the time, which was, you know, priests' sons and townspeople and merchants coming together to to talk about the province and what it meant. Uh, he sees this as as inauthentic, uh, as you know, not anything worthy of interest. And he's also responding to the need of the state to have a very um, legible sphere. So the need of the state to, to ensure that when one goes into a provincial town, one sees the same sorts of things. That's what the state wants. It wants legibility. But from Gogol's point of view, a romantic point of view, that's inauthenticity. Whereas the, the district, right, or the village, in the second part of his book, he presents as this place of true Russia, and this is the place where people can really be free, and he presents these nobles that some of which are some of whom are really living the lives the way they ought to and they're creating this new kind of better Russia and that's completely in line with this district identity that I argue is uh, emerging among nobles at that same time in the 1840s. So the book itself, Dead Souls, it is an artistic work but it also is a response to larger processes that are going on. This actually speaks also to another one of your, your conceptual frameworks, and that is the emergence or the importance of, of subnational or, or local or regional identity uh, in in 19th, early 19th century Russia and mid 19th century Russia. Um, and and it seems that from your description of Gogol here and his rejection of the the inauth what he sees as inauthentic for the authentic, which is seems to be some sort of attempt to uncover a um, kind of Russianness of sorts. So, talk about the emergence of a of a local identity and what facilitates that in in the eighteen thirties and into the eighteen fifties. I think in order to understand what's going on in the 1830s, we need to look at what earlier subnational identities had started to form. And in some places like Siberia and the Russian North, these identities went back to at least the 17th century. And they're what I call mystical regionalism. It's centered around this idea that the region is a network of uh, sacred sites and springs and things associated with saints and local pilgrimages. And then in the 18th century, there comes what I call Enlightenment regionalism, which is an idea especially prevalent under, under uh, Catherine the Great, which is basically saying that the 
Brigen is empty, it's blank, it's a void. There's nothing there until the autocrat comes and creates something new. And we see this uh, expressed even, even in Siberia itself. And in Russia, that idea of enlightenment regionalism of the region is a blank, sort of a blank page that can be written on as the people in power desire has remained pretty influential. Uh, then you get this influence of romantic regionalism, in, especially in Ukraine in the 1820s, where there you have this idea that, you know, Ukrainian is an authentic language because it's more peasant and Ukrainian traditions are more ancient. They're going back to Kiev and all that sort of stuff. So there's this earlier history. But then when we get to the 1830s, that is the moment where you have a rise of provincial identity. And this comes out of uh, a way of making sense of these provincial boundaries that before had really only been lines on a map. Uh, it was Catherine the Great who was the one who oversaw the drawing of most of these boundaries, but there had not really been a pre-existing sense of I belong to this particular province. One might have felt like I'm, you know, I am someone living in this town, you know, so I am from that town, but not the province. So it was the institutions that were created by the government that were especially crucial for uh, putting together this sense of provincial uh, identity. And that is really, for example, the uh, statistical committees, the provincial statistical committees, which were originally put together to study the uh, economic kind of vitality of the provinces, and also the provincial uh, newspapers, which in many ways had a similar kind of economic origin, this idea if you make people more aware of what other people are doing. You can increase competition. The government also will become more aware of taxable objects. But because there are these institutions that are there that have the goal of studying the province, it starts to generate a sense of, hey, I actually am someone who is from this particular province. And that is not something that the government intended to do. That wasn't part of their goal, but it was an unintended consequence of, of their desire to increase the economic productivity of the provinces. Right, and and this this is this goes to your, your kind of third framework that you're looking at, and that is the emergence of a Russian civil society or a civil society in the provinces, better put. And um and and here, lots of people are thinking about this. They use focus specifically on uh, ideas derived from Adam Smith, and then other ideas derived from Hegel. So, talk a bit about the thinking about civil society at the time. Uh, going on in, in Russia, the discussions going on in Russia. Again, I really wanted to use concepts that were part of the time period I was studying. I didn't want to impose concepts from, an early, from a later time period, but instead to see what was it that they were thinking about, what kind of ideas did they have at their own disposal in order to understand who they were. And what I found was that there was quite a long history of engaging with the concept of civil 
civil society. And it starts in 1703 when we have the first use of the Russian term for civil society, and that's influenced by Aristotle, because Aristotle and his writings talked about civil society as being different from uncivil society. So civil society is civilized and the people who are part of that are civilized people. But there isn't really a sense of that there's a difference between the state and society. That comes later. Uh, then in the late 18th century, we have this influence from Adam Smith. And Adam Smith, uh, in his lectures, and these are particularly in his lectures that he gave in, in Glasgow, he argued that there were different stages that all societies have to go through and that all societies would have to go from an agrarian stage, what we would now call feudalism, to a commercial or civil society. And commercial society, we're talking about markets and you know the tendency to truck and barter and competition petition and all these things that I'm sure people have heard of. Civil society, he means more polished manners, less militarism, um, you know, the mixing of men and women in um, in more polished kind of uh, places like like balls or in enlightened kind of spheres. And there actually he's very influenced by the contrast between the Scottish Highlands and the Lowlands, right? So the, the Highlands, feudalistic, more tribal, the Lowlands, more influenced from England, more uh, polished manners, people are dressed in a different way and they're acting in a way that they're probably not gonna be having to fight each other physically. Instead, they can buy and sell things. So the Russians are influenced by this concept, I actually argue, pretty much earlier than anyone else, because uh, Simon Desnitsky, who is one of Smith's students at Glasgow, he basically takes these classes with Smith, and then he immediately goes back and publishes his lecture notes as his own work, which I guess is okay in the 18th century, um, and becomes the father of Russian jurisprudence. So this concept that there's a shift from feudalism to what we would later call capitalism, is really first uh, expressed by Smith, and Russia is the first country to say, oh, wow, maybe we should move forward on this continuum here. Now, Catherine herself was not that interested in the totality of this idea, but she was interested in uh, commercial society, because if you encourage commercial society, you can raise more taxes. So then in the 1840s, you get the influence of Hegel. And I mean, Hegel's idea of civil society is the first time we get this idea of civil society as separate from the state. So he argued that civil society was between the family and the state. Uh, Smith, like Aristotle, hadn't clearly delineated the state from society. And Hegel argues that in order for civil society to have a real ground of freedom, there need to be property rights because as people make money, they need to invest their money somewhere and property is the way that you can most be assured that you have some separate uh, ground in which you can live 
even if someone tries to take away things from you, if they can't take away your property, you can still take positions that might be unpopular, for example. Creates autonomy, essentially. Exactly. So it creates autonomy. So with Hegel, you get the first conceptual uh, separation of civil society from the state. And all of these are coming into, into Russia really pretty early. I mean, the case of Smith, very early. Like the influence of Smith in Russia is much early much earlier and much deeper than it was in Germany, for example. Uh, here we have a little bit of that advantage of backwardness because, you know, in, in Germany they had cameralism, which emphasized more the role of the state in, in controlling things, whereas in Russia there wasn't yet a, a whole you know, discipline of jurisprudence. So Disnitsky, when he came back, he could found this discipline on a very Smithian basis. So uh, it's it's an interesting example. Now, one of the things I really liked, and because this goes to something I read years ago, reading uh, Bruce Lincoln's books on Nicholas the First, is is that uh, the looking at the Nikolaivan period not as this retrograde. Uh, period that is the standard story, though incredibly conservative period, incredibly conservative Tsar. But at the same time, you have some what you call it's a kind of era of small reforms. You know, th there's a recognition, at least by him, that change needs to happen. The question is what kind and how fast, it seems. Um, so talk about the, this era of small reforms in Vladimir province, because here, I mean, you've already mentioned this, you get the creation of statistical bureaus, you get the creation of the first provincial newspapers, um, and other kind of other what we would call civil society volunteer organizations. So talk about the this in, in development in Vladimir. What I argue about the reign of Nicholas I is that, like other czars, he had a more reforming period or earlier in his reign and then a more conservative period later in his reign. So just like Alexander I and Alexander II. And oftentimes when we think about Nicholas I, we think about him through the prism of that later very conservative period. And uh, I'm glad that you brought up Bruce Lincoln because he and like Cynthia Whitaker have written important books that help to show that that idea of Nicholas is somewhat distorted. And um, one of the things I also look at in my book is the work of Alexander Herzen, because Herzen, in many ways, his, his narrative of Russian history provided the, the meta-narrative for Russian history, in some ways, even up until the present day, this idea that there was this conservative Nikolaevan period, there was this revolutionary uh, movement that was resulting and that forces were brought into being. But I found that when I look at his actual actions in Vladimir, we get a very different picture. This is a man who was who was very tempted by the possibility of serving the state. And under the, the era of, of small reforms, there was a real possibility that he might have been able to do so. So what were the era of small reforms? So this was a moment uh, in the late 1830s and going on until the 1840s, to the late 1840s, where Nicholas was quite receptive to Smithian proposals. And Nicholas himself had a Smithian tutor, uh, Von Stork, and 
he, Nicholas, had chosen Konstantin uh, Arsenev, who was quite a Smithian, to be his son's tutor, Alexander II. Arsenev very much believed that serfdom had to go, and he, he called it the improvement of the life of the people. Uh, that was what his euphemism for the end of serfdom, and I find it interesting that that's the euphemism that's used uh, when Alexander II is in, is in charge. So in any case, so Nicholas himself is influenced by, by Smith, and Smith does seem to provide a way in which you could encourage economic development. You could get the people who are producing things. In the Smithian view, there's only so many productive classes, mainly the peasants and the um, and the merchants, right? Unproductive classes are uh, the clergy, nobles, and bureaucrats. So you can see a lot of people would be upset by that. But the idea, the idea is, if you institute Smithian kind of reforms, you encourage the productive classes to produce more. Then, by the way, you get more tax revenues. The state becomes stronger. And the way to do that uh, is that there are several different attempts to encourage the creation of a commercial society. And one of them is to establish public libraries, public libraries that would allow people in the provinces to become acquainted with new ideas, new technologies, new inventions, and that this would stimulate the economy. And it would also stimulate obsessiveness, this idea of a civil society or you know, a public space um, there were also the statistical committees, and statistics at this time was not what we think of it. It was a more descriptive kind of statistics that was especially focused on the well-being of the people. And by the people, I really mean the peasants. So oftentimes statistics had a very anti-serfdom slant to it, especially as done by Arsenyev, the guy I mentioned before, who was Alexander II's tutor. Uh, and then you have the provincial newspapers, and those newspapers originally have this economic origin to them. The idea is you get these productive classes to find out more about new developments in technology, new inventions, to find out where other merchants like themselves are in other places of the province, and that therefore the economy will flourish and tax revenues will become uh, greater. But then you have those side effects that I talked about before, those unintended consequences, which are to increase the uh, sense of provincial identity that is arising from all of these. So that's that's the kind of small reforms I'm looking at. And, and it's interesting because it's a parallel kind of situation that happens under the Soviet Union, where there, especially when we look at Gorbachev's era, where there's this attempt to, to increase the economic development, to uh, hasten and to uh, kind of push forward the, the things that are happening already economically. But then you have the other problem is when you try to increase economic development, you bring on other uh, claims, other political claims. And sometimes you can't easily separate economic development and political claims. Mm -hmm. So the, the development of this regional identity is, is really interesting. And, and, and it, because it comes at a time i mean all of these institutions that you you're you're showing arise in this period it, it's not just you know they're looking at kind of facilitating economic activity but really it's 
one of their first times Russians are starting to know the country to, in terms of knowledge, right? In terms of, you know, statistical knowledge, in terms of, you know, through the spreading of knowledge about the region through newspapers and, and, and creating the networks of communication, things like this. So you, you get it, but one of the things you point out is you have, again, kind of divergence. You have a divergence on the one hand between, say, non-nobles and nobles. But the the other contradiction that I'm wondering about, too, well, maybe it's not a contradiction, but one particular kind of divergence is the, the development of a regional identity. How does that fit into a larger Russian identity? Does it, does it, does it, because at this, at this period too, you're also getting an increase in, in discourse and discussions about what does it mean to be Russian? Like, what is, what is Russian nationality, right? And this kind of very romantic idea. So how does the, the regional identity mesh with this larger, you know, meditation on Russianness? So in terms of knowing the, the region, there were, earlier attempts. I mean, even even going back to the pre-Petrine period, where the state would sometimes reach out to individuals, as happened in uh, Siberia. Valerie Kempelson writes about this. And then under Catherine the Great, it becomes a bit more um, institutionalized in that there are all these topographical descriptions. But that's sort of one person going out, trying to figure out how many factories are there, how many people are there. It's not an ongoing kind of process in which a whole group of people are constantly working on this question of how do we know the totality of our province. And that is very much influenced in the 1830s to the 1860s. It's very much influenced by Romanticism. Uh, And one sees it especially in 1845 with the creation of the Russian Geographical Society and also of a new uh, program for the provincial newspapers that is very focused, not just on kind of a whole laundry list of all the economic things the state would like to know about the provinces, but also on what is the totality of this thing called the province? What what makes it a province? Let's look at the whole thing in the big picture, which of course is very romantic. Um, and so, yeah, you do get these these divergencies and these these conflicts, like the non nobles. They're especially based in the um, in the provincial town and also in many cases in the village because there are priests in the village, right? So they are interested in the province as a whole because in 1837, uh, the government put through a reform that gave the, the governor more power and at the provincial level. And because the governor got more power, it meant that the nobles got less power. So this opens up a space in 1837 for non-nobles to start describing and discussing the province as a whole. Now, the nobles are not 
exactly thrilled with the situation. So they start claiming the district, right? So the district is sort of similar to the county. It's a subdivision of the province. And usually it was within a day's uh, drive for people to go to the district town. And so they are arguing, hey, the district is this noble space and this is the true Russia, this is authentic. And the district was a kind of network of estates, uh, noble estates. Many, many of these nobles would be connected to each other either by interest or by blood. And so they would be able to go from one place to the other. And so then the idea of Russian identity, I mean, one actually sees this in um, in the the literature of the time like dead souls for example like I was saying that second book which I think too often has just been dismissed as his attempt to get back in the good graces of of the czar and the, you know people at the top I actually do think there's something more to it he's trying to put forward what he sees as a true Russia which is based in the district and that is just speaking for many of the nobles who would say exactly the same thing. So it's this idea that Russia is an agrarian country and it's it's based uh, in the um, uh, in the estates of the nobles. And we see this even in the late 19th century, you know, the 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 paintings of the itinerants, for example, uh, you get the, the the idea of this path in a wood as being like the classic sort of Russian, uh, you know, Russian national kind of landscape rather than a painting of Moscow or even less of St. Petersburg. So the, the local becomes in some ways constitutive of the national, but in a strange way, in a way that it's kind of stripped of its actual content. It becomes a birch forest, just a birch forest, not, not in any particular place, not in any particular province, but just a birch forest. And, and there you can see the continuing influence of Enlightenment regionalism, where even though this is a specific landscape, it's not a specific landscape in the sense of like French regionalism, where you can see that this is a, a landscape from Brittany, for example. So there isn't that the, the localism is actually it becomes the the typical of Russianness rather than a localism of its own. Like there's it's I don't know if it's safe to say this, but it's not like a development of Vladimirness, <laughs> right? It's the local is actually typical of the of of the the more romantic idea of Russianness. Uh, that's actually really really interesting. Actually, there there's. There's a difference in terms of the reception at what level, because there is a sort of Latimer-ness that comes about as a result of this, but it's really only articulated within that province. Uh, and it continues to be articulated up until the present day. In many ways, there's, there is a continuation there. But at the national level, at the level of Russian culture, sort of capital R, capital C, no, it doesn't exist. Instead, it is that typicality itself. Given all of this development going on um, in the province, how does this figure into the process of, of abolishing serfdom? Like, how, how, do, how does it serfdom change the relationships? How do people participate and enact these reforms at the local level? 
Yeah, well, this is a really fascinating story. And, um, you know, part of this story has, has been known for a long time, but part of it is is really quite new in the book because one of the things I look at in the book is the role that the uh, agricultural societies played in the abolition of serfdom. And that is something that has not been looked at before, aside from extremely short pieces of two or three pages that were published in uh, provincial um, journals and so on and so forth. So so that is something that, that is quite new. But um, the process of ending serfdom, it happens at different levels because at the center, at the beginning of the process of abolishing serfdom, there's this idea that the provinces should be able to legislate for themselves. And these are grand nobles who are who are very sympathetic to the idea that there should be regional variations and that the nobility ought to have a major role in deciding how their province will actually end serfdom. And then later on in the late 1850s, you get this shift towards a much more centralized um, way of ending serfdom, and that's under Nikolai Milutin. And in some ways, that shouldn't be surprising, right? Because it, it is an autocracy. So the argument that the center should be in control, in some ways, seems as though it should be obvious. And yet, what happens is that the process starts by saying, hey, provinces, decide for yourself. And then halfway through, after they've already been organized and already deciding for themselves, it's like, oh, never mind. You <laughs> it know? seems to be a very familiar form of Russian governance. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. Even That's in true. the Soviet period. <laughs> That's true. You're right, actually. It's like, ah, maybe maybe we shouldn't have stirred up that hornet's nest. So uh, in terms in terms of the you know the process and relations between nobles and former serfs you have two different very th different things you have what the nobles want and you have what the state created and they're they're very different uh the nobles especially the nobles who were influenced by hegel they wanted to have institutions in which former masters and former serfs would be united by their common property ownership. And they argued that, that those things should exist at the sub-district level, right? So this is like, you know, the township level, at the district level, uh, and even at the provincial level. And that was part of their hope that they would be able to acculturate the peasants to make them more like nobles over time. The state has a very different view of what it wants. Um, there's a lot of influence of romanticism. There's a lot of this belief that the peasants are the natural bulwark against uh, revolution, that the peasants will always be firm supporters of, of the Romanovs. And what needs to happen is not to educate them, but to kind of keep them in that same authentic state that they are in serfdom. So much so that in terms of property, they, they didn't give individual peasants land. It was in the control of the communes. Exactly, exactly. And uh, one of the things that, that some scholars have argued is that the concept of the commune was a creation by Hackshausen, who was a, a German 
um, thinker and who went to Yaroslavl and was very influenced by a particular landlord there, a landlord who was involved in the Yaroslavl Agricultural Society, by the way. And so he wrote about it and the idea of the commune then got taken up in Russia. And so we, we don't 100% know for sure what every single village was doing. A lot of times we sort of assume that it was a commune, but we don't know for sure what was happening before 1861, because many of those did not generate very good records. It happens when, when people are illiterate, records, record keeping gets kind of spotty. Um, and so, we do know that after 1861 there were communes because the state instituted communes. Uh, so they interacted, they made the decision to interact with the peasant through the commune and not individually. And that marked the peasants very differently because the shift was happening uh, right around this time with the great reforms to for the government to try to mobilize people individually right but the commune was the exception so the peasants were the exception so what the state does is for example in the creation of the district level zimstvas the zimstvas are the the local uh, governmental bodies there who have control over like education and health for example the zimstvas at the district level uh you would have representation from the commune and then you would have representation from you know individual um uh, nobles and and other uh, and other property owners, which was exactly the opposite of what the nobles wanted. They wanted to be able to have the peasants become property owners and not be set off. But that was not what the the government wanted. Wow, that I didn't I didn't I didn't know that that the I that the communes might have been actually more of a creation as a result of abolition than something that was a you know, uh, institutionalized structure before. The, the thing is, we just don't know because there there could have been many, many, many different forms of, of peasant activity. And for example, the, the person who uh, informed was the informant to Haxhausen, Haxhausen describes the, the commune there as out, outside of market relations. And yet that person, that landlord, was very engaged in getting his serfs to engage in the market by having them sell their linen and that sort of thing. So it's one of these real ironies. And, and when you look at the local, you can start to see where concepts began and the ironies of how they were actually presented to the world when the local situation is, is kind of different. The great reforms, of course, are a real pivotal moment in Russia's history. Um, and there's, you know, endless debate about their importance. Do they, you know, the, their, their failures, their shortcomings, et cetera. But one of the things you, you point out in, in the contradiction of them is that here under Nicholas, you have the development of this very self-aware civil society. But then under, under the reforms at Alexander, there is a, a failure or reluctance to fully incorporate this new civic identity into the governance of the 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 state or the governance at, at the local level so in, in thinking about that how does how do how do you evaluate the great reforms and these contradictions that it created yeah the great reforms are one of these things that look 
different when you end with them as opposed to starting with them. And a lot of works start with the great reforms. And when you, when you end with the great reforms, you see how they're the culmination of a lot of different threads and strands that might have ended in a different sort of, of great reforms. And the reforms, as they were actually institutionalized, did lay the groundwork for this flourishing of civil society, especially if you look at voluntary associations. I mean, after 1861, there are many, many, many different voluntary associations. Uh, after 1861 is this great era of Russian art and architecture and music journalism and too journalism yeah. and on and on and on um, although a lot of that has at its base the search of the nobility for meaning because they had lost a lot of their meaning as a result of the reforms because before that they had been the intermediary between the czar and the people and after that there's a sense of well what who are we now what is our place in society now so so the great reforms even though they do set the stage for this wonderful efflorescence of all these exciting things that happen in the late imperial period that make it so wonderful to study, they do also establish a state that is structurally weak because the peasantry, which is the vast majority of the population, is set off, is set set aside and has its own kind of institutions like the uh, sub-district court in which they make their own decisions and they they come up with their with their own um, kind of way of policing themselves and even though they're very active and they're engaged they don't have they don't develop a sense of being part of this larger body because they don't have to engage with the nobles and they don't have to engage with with merchants and you know interestingly Scott Seregni has, has written about um, peasant education and the attempts of the Zemstva to make peasants into Russians, for example. And even though he has a generally positive kind of spin, and he's talking about how in World War One things were really looking up, the peasants were really engaged, he also notes just how weak the government institutions were. So the, the great reforms did not really create a state that was strong enough to stand up to the test of World War I. Um, and that was a test that, that did come and many empires fell and many you know, emperors uh, lost their empire and sometimes their heads. Um, so it, the great reforms in some ways were a success, but in, in some ways it was um, a missed opportunity to to bring the peasants closer in, to put them under the same kind of institutions, and to uh, give them a sense, more of a sense of belonging to a body politic in which the nobles and the and the merchants were a legitimate part, and because that was missing in in their institutions. And finally, this is and uh, to touch on this this issue of the state not not being able to um, deal with the crisis of World War One. I, I mean, you end your book with a quite emphatic note that the state's refusal to see civil society as a quote legitimate partner is what facilitated this collapse. The fact that the state couldn't handle, and it was interesting when I read this because this also reminded me of a, of one of 
the Gramsci's famous diagnoses of, of the collapse of the Russian Empire and the Russian Revolution in his state and civil society, where he speaks of, you know, in, in Russia, the state was everything. And so when it trembled, it collapsed. But in the West, because of civil society, it was buttressed by, he has this really great metaphor of systems of tunnels and earthworks to prop it up. And, and this, I thought this was really interesting because your view of this at the end of the book of civil society is really different than the normal discourse of civil society that's been with us really, you know, since 1989 as a political form, um, where soci civil society is always viewed as against the state. But you're saying what you're point pointing out here is that it's actually the failure to recognize it as a legitimate partner in governance is is the problem. Could you can you talk more about this kind of ending note of of how you see civil society as a legitimate partner? I think to a certain extent, um, I mean, what you say is definitely true, and I think it's it's widespread. But to a certain extent, it's based on a misreading of what happened in 1989. Yeah. Uh, uh, so. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, Stephen Kotkin uh, has this interesting book, uh, Uncivil Society. Where yeah, it's a great book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where he argues that really it was only in Poland where you have this classic, what we now see as the normative idea of civil society as being very much against the state. Solidarity is, you know, arguing against the state and it's creating its own state structures. But as he points out, in all the other uh, countries, you did not have a civil society that was the same as solidarity. And in, in a lot of those other countries, it was instead uh, kind of a bank run, as he puts it, on the institution. So many times it was former communists who basically said, hey, now we're nationalists. And they might have taken upon themselves the mantle of civil society, but it is not necessarily uh, civil society itself. So, so 1989, we often think of, oh, it shows the power of civil society. But if it only shows the power of civil society in Poland, I'm not sure that that means that it is the same thing as, as showing the, that this is what civil society uh, can do everywhere. I think civil society is a partner that can also oppose, right? So that's, that's I think, the idea that civil society is, uh, is between state and family, and it can work with the state. I mean, this, and this is something that we see extensively in all democracies and, um, you know, advanced states. I mean, uh, even, even like China, which I don't want to talk about in detail because I'm not, uh, you know, a Chinese expert at all, but there are institutions that are trying to organize people. Uh, there's not, it's not just the, the state. Um, so if the state wants to be able to reach out to society, to get society uh, to do things, it can't just be through force. It just can't be through force. And there has to be mechanisms other than the army uh, and tax collection in order to do that. And in a way, what happened is the, the czars kind of forgot that 
even though they wanted to have a Prussian-style intensively administered state, that they had a state that a country that was a lot larger than Prussia, and they just simply did not have the state capacity in order to have that kind of really uh, extensive and intensive administration. So what happens is they're rejecting the attempts of civil society to partner with them based on a false idea of what autocracy had been in the past. And at the same time, they themselves are not able to do uh, these fundamental things. And we see this, you know, with like famines in the late 19th century, for example. And then, of course, we really see it with, with World War One. So yeah, I do, I do feel that our kind of common understanding of, of civil society emphasizes more the opposition, but I, I think that's just one facet of its activity. That was Susan Smith-Peter, an associate professor of history at the College of Staten Island, City University of New York. She's the author of Imagining Russian Regions, Civil Society and Subnational Identity in 19th Century Russia, published by Brill. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Please read from sheets. I am. I am. Sofa King. Scared of a bunch of water, then get out the rain Order a wrapper for lunch and spit out the chain Then kick a lungy off the tip of his timbo And trick a honey dip into a game of strip limbo Odd, he couldn't find no remorse A wink is as good as a nod to a blind horse Of course his technique was from a divine source Never knew the price of ice or what swine cost One guy tried to bite the heat It's when he discovered the other, other white meat Oh, the one they hate so well He sure keeps his cycle like the old Bates Motel They came to ask him for at least some new tracks But only got confronted by the beast with two backs Knock, Mouse is a made man Villain laid it down like the best laid plan Bell the cat, who the hell is that near the middle? Got y'all, but it's not all bearing Skittles Prepare the vittles, got riddles and spittles Crystal clear to the jot or the tittle it's hot off the griddle Came to take the cake whether it's a lot or a little Kaboom, doom is nervous large You could tell by his blooming room service charge Dark and tall to boot The only thing was wrong is he was bald as a coot Used to ran a van from Peter Pan to Red and Tan And keep the human foot for his dead man's hand This was when the mask was brand spanking new Before it got rusted from drinking all the brew Stankin' too, pew Kept all his earnings in the bank in a shoe Spat what he knew Energy for true To all fake rap, it's 23 skadoo Excuse you, any woman